Thanks for joining us, Andrew Marks. Good morning. How are you going? Very well. Very well. So let's mention a couple of the things that you're involved with. So Gembrook Hill would be the one that springs to mind straight away. We've got the Wanderer, MGC, just general legend about town. Have I forgotten anything? No, that's, that's, that's everything. <laughs> Is that your normal intro, Andrew? Just general legend oh, about town? <laughs> yeah, no, not really. <laughs> well, I'll get some business cards made up for you. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Thanks. Uh, so let's talk about the family vineyard, Jembrook Hill. So when did it start? What was it like growing up there? What are your memories of growing up? Oh, listen, um, so my father was a... Um, I come from three generations of dentists. And, oh, right. um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> They're normally doctors. Actually, that's right. That's right. But dad was a frustrated um, farmer. So he went off to Armadale um, to do a year of ag before he um, joined oh. the, the dentistry faculty back in the day. And so Andrew, that's my that. neck of the woods, by the way. Oh, I'm an Armadale Tamworth girl. Yeah. Well, there you go. So um, so that was, he always had that, that longing for the land, I guess. And um, he and uh, my mum and June, uh, Ian, so he, Ian and June, they basically um, they fell in with, into a circle of friends in the sort of 70s and 80s that were basically the forefathers of the of the modern Yarra Valley. So uh, Reg Egan and Reg and Tina Egan from Wanderer Estate, um, John and Marg um, Milton from Mount Mary, and Peter and um, I might have, uh, sorry uh, Marley, John and Marley from um, Mount Mary, and. Um, the several state guys, um, Peter and Pete um, McMahon. And so they were their sort of circle of friends. Wow. And they were about 15 years younger than those guys, but they were very welcoming and they were, you know, and they were doctors and lawyers and, you know, quite an interesting bunch to hang out with. And, and that sort of rekindled Dad's love for it. He was always a, a wine and, and foodie, like a foodie before, you know, sort of the Master Chef era before it was fashionable to be a foodie. Yeah. Um, and in, and back in those days, there was sort of like only 10 good restaurants in Melbourne kind of thing. So, you know, how it's changed. And, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Gosh. So they got that sort of flavour. So that in the sort of like late 70s, they, they embarked on a, like a five-year trip around the, what we call the dress circle of Melbourne. So like an, they sort of like drew a circle around Melbourne and now are out of Melbourne. So I actually grew up in Hawthorne in the inner east and um we spent five years in the back of the car as, as young children looking for um as my parents searched for a, a beautiful site and basically dad was looking for an eastern slope yep. eastern facing site and, and a good place to retire to essentially but um eventually they found this property in um in Jembrook in uh, 1983 and it was literally a week before the ash wednesday wow. um bushfires wow. and uh and so when when that went up in smoke they weren't sure where our property was in relation to, to the fires uh, which is pretty crazy but from then on in, it was just a, a basic um, cow paddock that they uh, set to with, you know, not a lot of alert knowledge, but a lot of enthusiasm and curiosity in, into um, into planting vines. Yeah, and just explain to our listeners a little bit, Andrew, when, when the Yarra Valley, we were took, we were joking before about Upper and Yarra, but I mean it's a significant thing. Soils are different, climate's pretty different, but Jembrook's pretty cold place, isn't it? Yeah, Jembrook is pretty much off the map in terms of the Yarra Valley. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's the southern end of the line for, for puffing Billy. It's a, it's a great little um, sort of hamlet, really, which is um, it's now got some really good restaurants actually. So it's getting a bit more busy on the weekends. But it's um, it is the southern end of the Yarra Valley. We're pretty much the southernmost vineyard in the Yarra Valley. We're, we ripen up to a month later than most other vineyards. It's not. It's quite high. It's about, but it's not the highest vineyard by any stretch in the Yarra Valley. We're about 300 metres, red soils, um, red volcanic soils, beautiful fertile soils, which means a lot of work that goes into the vineyard because the, the vines just grow and grow and grow. Yeah. 
yeah, and a really high rainfall. So the, the rainfall is almost twice that of the, the lower Yarra. So is that so? Yeah, it's, wow. it's, it's wet. It's a big difference. <laughs> yeah, so there's a bit of there's significant problems with disease pressure there, I imagine, and you've got to get in and work the vines pretty hard. Yeah, so with a site like ours where the vines are extremely vigorous, it just means that we spend a lot of our, to- our time in the vineyard doing a lot of canopy management. So we, we use vertical shoot positioning so the, the vines grow upright. And we we basically spend a lot of time, you know, about now we're, we're getting to that point almost where we start doing shoot thinning. Yep. Um, and that basically becomes a very busy period up, up until Christmas really where we're just basically ripping um, foliage out of the canopy in order to open up to allow light and air into the canopy to, to reduce um, disease risk. And you'd be you'd be uh, green harvesting too, right? So like dropping the potential amount of grapes that you can grow? No, we don't. Nope. We don't need to. We're extremely low cropping. So right. I guess, um, and, you know, we're under two tonnes the acre. So, you know, oh. it's, the yields are, are tiny. Um, and essentially, I mean, the shoot thinning is, is essentially um, it, a it, bit of that because what we're also shoot um, positioning. So... Shoot thinning is, you know, each bud has potential three shoots. Yep. And, and often they will, in, in a vigorous site, they'll actually, all three shoots can sometimes actually start growing. So we will um, rip those two of those out by hand. Yeah. And then we'll actually position uh, the shoots along the cordon to make sure that they're well spaced and we don't have excessive props. So that's, that's that really... Yeah, you've taken care of it in terms of um, organising it early, sort of, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, green harvest, so, yeah, that's never been a, a big issue for us. Yeah, right. So... The, the site's only um, 13 acres or five hectares, um, and there's just two of us who work in the vineyard. We pride ourselves on the fact that it's the, the winemakers in the vineyard growing the grapes, which is, mm. I think, um, which is really important to make really good quality wine. And we're planting yeah, to we're planting to Sauvignon Blanc, um, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir. Oh, that's that's what I was just about to speak to you about. That uh, it seems that you've only got those three varietals. Um, uh, you make a few different uh, pinots, but I'm interested with the Blanc de Blanc. You've got the 2011. That's 100% Chardonnay, right? That's correct. Yeah. So we first um, started making the, two, the, the Blanc de Blanc in 2004, which was a really wet year, quite similar to 2011. Really wet year, quite cool and quite high cropping as it turned out. So 11 was a great year for whites, wasn't it? It was a great year for whites. It was, it was mm. difficult. It was like the wettest year in 100 years in terms of, <laughs> in terms of rainfall. Might get yeah. challenged this year. All those sort of one in a hundred year events seem to be challenged more and more these days. But um, yeah, um, but yeah, look, uh, it was a, it was a great year for for Chardonnay. So because it was a high cropping year, it gave us the ability to progressively uh, disgorge that wine. And so we released. So in 2011, um, at that stage, we were releasing the wine with four years on year sleeves, and mm-hmm. I released it, um, it three times. So with four years on your sleeves, with five years on your sleeves, now with six years on your sleeves, which just allowed us to push out the rest of our sort of, um, bubbles program to be six years on your sleeves from that stage on. And then the current release that we've got um, out at the moment is actually, I, I left two bins in the shed for um, 10 years, it turned out to be 11 years because um, of, of COVID got in the way of things. And we basically disgorged that on the 27th of June this year, which happened mm-hmm. to be my dad's birthday, which was quite oh, nice. That's um, lovely. There we go. And, yeah, numbers are great, and uh, and we've disgorged that. So it's eleven years on usually. So it's quite, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing why you can taste the complexity, but it's also the purity and, and strength of Chardonnay coming through. It's, it's really. Jeez, I'd love to try that. <laughs> I've actually got a bit of a random question for you. Um, I, yeah. I don't know if you can actually answer it, but I'd like to put it out there. So uh, more because someone asked me this the other day, Blanc de Blanc, 
and blog the blogs. What is your oh. take on whether, yeah, you can see where I'm going with this. So my question was, should it always be blog to blog? Because essentially it means white and white. It's only going to be white grapes. But yes. it's not always just 100% Chardonnay or 100% monovarietal. Um, there can be there can be another white varietal included, in which case is that when you would then call it a blog to blogs? Well, that's that's very technical. Um, <laughs> that's a good question, though. That's a great question. Um, it is, well, I thought it was a good question too, yeah. So, um, well, if I, I – I mean, it all comes from obviously from um, Champagne and I don't, I'm not aware yeah. of – other white varieties that go into champagne other than Chardonnay. So, you know, well, you're permitted to have Pinot Gris, actually. Is one yeah, of the it's, it's actually there you go. It's something yeah. like it's less than 3% that would be that mm. would be the additional, but the fact is it still does exist. So, yeah. I am fact-checked. Look, I I don't know the answer to that question. That's a, sure. I, I no reckon, yeah, I, I just reckon that's a translation thing, but um, interesting <laughs> point nonetheless. We'll have to look that yeah. up, no. Jill. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, so if anyone knows, text it. <laughs> text yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christopher sent in a text message actually for you, Andrew, and he's asking what sort of clones of Pinot Noir you've got up on the estate there. Is it just the old Mother Vine 6 or you got up something else up your sleeve? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. So... Um, when we planted back in 83, it was almost um, pre-clonal, would you believe? And so um, literally what Dad did was he went um, to Regine, his great mate's place, and took cuttings from that vineyard and yep. put them in the ground at our place. And I've talked to Marianne Egan about this, um, Reg's daughter who now um, runs the show with Reg. Yep. And they have the invoice for the vines that they purchased. Really? Um, but 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 they don't, you know, in the 60s, but they don't actually have the clone nah, on it. of so course, yeah. They've got no idea what it is. Yeah, well, but, we'll just call it the Juan Turner clone then. That's right. And the, the curious thing is, is though, at Juan Turner, so they're, they're a, a warmer site, mm. a little bit lower down on different soils, so quite um, heavy grey clay soils. And so the thing I find fascinating about this is that their wine is, is, is again, very light and perfume, but... In conversation with Marianne, she said it tends to be a bit more um, muscular style right. of um, Pinot, whereas at our place, they're you know, really light in colour and, and very perfumed. And what it speaks to me of is that sort of um, that um, genetic instability of Pinot, which leads it to um, to settle in with its site very well and yeah. more with the site. And so that's the epigenetics um, of, of Pinot, which makes it quite interesting. So most of the vineyards planted that. There's a few rows of... Um, in 2014, we pulled out some old Chardonnay, uh, which felt, I felt like an absolute vandal doing that. But <laughs> yeah. basically, um, with, uh, with Phylloxera being introduced into the Yarra in 2006, it's sort of like this looming um, yeah, it's cloud. A, it's a time bomb, isn't everyone. it? Yeah. It really is. And while we're quite a long way from the rest of the Yarra and we think we're very special at Gembrook, we don't think we're that special <laughs> that we won't get Phylloxera <laughs> at some stage. So we've, we've started embarked on this bit of a program where we've in 14 we replanted some um some um uh, put out some chardonnay replanted on um 10114 rootstock which is a devigorating rootstock um and put mv6 on top of that and that that block which whose first crop was in 2017 um and we we'd actually um left those vines those rootstock in the nursery for two years before we brought them to general so they were really strong um those um, the first crop was in 2017, which allowed us to start um, blending and playing with the Pinot that, um, that we've been able to produce, um, introduce new Pinots into our range. 
That's pretty interesting. Um, um, and it, we're just chatting here with Andrew Marks from Gembrook Hill. Andrew, have you heard the story of Abel Pinot Noir, the clone, and, and how it got its name? I believe that's the one that got smuggled in a gumboot from... Um, Apparently from, yeah, from Romany Conti. And it was sort of, it was, uh, you know, sort of stopped somewhere by a dude called Abel who was working for the New Zealand, you know, for something in, in terms of importation and making sure that, you know, the diseases didn't come through and everything. But I only heard that story the other day. I didn't, didn't, didn't realise that was like a... Like a, a a story that was out there. Uh, before we talk too much more about wine, I just want to change gears a little bit because you've also got like an incredibly awesome gin, Melbourne Gin Company. When, when did that start? Um, so, well, it started from a from a love of for martinis, really. Um, and just, <laughs> no you know, talking. Seems a really good very, place to start. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I just I love um, I love cocktail culture, and I love. You know, martini is just one of those drinks where you can, you know, you can have one at home. And I have early memories of my grandfather, you know, stirring them down um, at his bench top, you know, as a, as a young child. And it just seemed like a very sort of elegant, civilised uh, thing to do. And, you know, you go to a bar, you can have a fancy moment um, or, or not really. But uh, it's sort of the idea started um, floating around the back of my mind in 2009. And at, at that stage, I actually live in the city in Melbourne and I commute out to the valley every day. And... Um, and I was living with a, a flatmate, a surgeon, a, fr- a great friend of mine, and we, we had um, Martini Tuesdays, he and I. So being a, being a winemaker and him, uh, and him, he being a surgeon, we'd solve the problems of the world from two very different points of view and, and uh, do that over a Martini. It was quite, quite a lot of fun. So that's how the whole thing started. And at some point I suddenly thought to myself, well, why don't I have a crack at, at uh, making some gin? We've got a problem. We're clearly going through too much of it. So... We have a bit of a theme about gin on the show today, Andrew. Um, (laughs) And I I love that people are just dipping into gin everywhere. And as Beck said earlier this morning, that, you know, if people drink wine, it's a fair assumption that they like gin as well. It just seems to be this, you know, this this lovely little crossover. And um, so we love getting people informed. Actually, I often get people asking, uh, look, do you have people on the show that um, to speak about gin and not just that one? I said, absolutely. We, we love to embrace the different spirits and what's going on with that, with that side of the world because um, I love watching the way that gin is now, well, has been for a while now, and other spirits being treated the same way as wine, the sense of what foods do you pair them with? And you know what? What are the beautiful nuances when you add, do add caffeine and that sort of jazz? And so it's a it's a very fun part of you know a fun thing to explore. Uh, it is, and it's never been a better time to be a gin drinker right now. Let's face it. Um, mm, totally. Yeah, well, it can be a bit confusing for some of them, but I mean, the, the, I guess my point was like when you started distilling gin, there weren't that many Australian distilleries actually doing it, were there? No. I, in fact, there were a few. There were a number of Australian distillers, um, yeah. but there was nothing that was, um, and I think Philip Moore of um, up in New South Wales, uh, who has Moore's Gin, he was one of the very first, and there's a guy out in Bathurst, or uh, I think um, I think Stone Pine Distillery, he's making some gin out there. There's a few guys who, who are around and about, um, uh, but it was, yeah, it wasn't what it is today. That's absolutely um, true. So... I was actually reading this really pithy and, and amusing um, memoir by the late um, Frank Morehouse called Martinia Memoir. Yeah. And I came, I came, it's a great read. I recommend it to anyone. It's really, uh, he, he lived a very interesting life and he basically uh, looked at his life through the lens of uh, Martini drinking and law, L-O-R-E, law. And um, 
I came across this phrase in this book where he said every time it's uh, Martini represents the journey towards the the unattainable ideal drink. And as a guy that makes Pinot Noir, who strives every year for perfection in Pinot, which we all know doesn't exist, I found that that idea, (laughs) that really, that sort of cross-pollination of ideas really quite appealing. I thought, oh, so gin and and Pinot may not be that dissimilar. Maybe I should um, have a crack at making my own gin. You know, gin, to be fair, I love all spirits, you know, and I I went to Islay in Scotland in 2006 just to um, sort of learn more about peachy whiskies because I I love that place. And they've got a real Mm. sense of terroir to me. Mm. But, but gin is this spirit which is really I'm, – I'm, I'm a purist. I'm a bit of a classicist in the sense that I just it's a fresh drink. And I thought as a winemaker, my skills in terms of um, playing with flavour all day long, it gave me a good shot. I, you know, back in, in 2011 and 12 when I started to get a bit more serious about it, I, I wasn't really sure if I was actually going to be able to make my own gin. Like at that stage, there was no book on how to make it. You know, these days there's probably a YouTube channel about it. So or a TikTok. <laughs> It was a real journey to ask me to figure out how to go about doing it, and hence the way that you know the, the dry uh, dry gin is made, um, which is you know it's like a winemaking approach to making gin, where we distill all the botanicals individually and then blend them together. Yeah. Um, that 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 sort of allowed me to be um, quite precise with my flavour sort of spotting. It's almost a bit like when you're blending wines together, you, you sweet spot them, and um, and they just like come together at that, that that right sort of blend, and that's what I did with the gin, just to. I wasn't. I was like saying, wouldn't it be great to make a dry gin? But like you know, a, a beef feeder, which I think is a terrific gin. It is just bright mm-hmm. and fresh and quite well balanced. Um, but the the, the, end, the gin just took its own shape as I was putting it together on the bench. I, Can I ask you what what sort of what sort of gin is actually like? Your do you have a, a particular flavour of gin that you prefer? Well, I honestly remember um, the great game changer for me was Hendrix. I think that changed yes. for a lot of people. And it, it was probably because Hendrix has got this texture that when you have an ice-cold martini, um, it doesn't have that sort of alcohol burn that you associate with mm. a few gins, which, which are quite hardy. So like when with other gins, you know you're really, you're, um, you're having sort of like a strong alcohol, whereas Hendrix had that yes. soft silkiness, that texture, smoothness. And, and, and they um, introduced that cucumber with it, didn't they, which actually just... The, the cucumber infused it kind of just like um, it, it, it takes the edge off even more. Is that right? I think so. So the damascene rose and, and cucumber, it, you know, and it's the genius of, of their of their whole story. It's, it's quite fascinating um, now that, you know, you know, gin tonics or, sorry, martinis are, are forever sort of, and gin tonics are connected with, you know, a cucumber garnish, which is, is really quite clever yeah. with, with Hendrix. Yeah. But, I, I, yeah, I think they're added after this lesson. I think, yeah, that, that certainly helps. Um, and I have had the um, I have heard Leslie Gracie, who is their master distiller, speak, and she's she's one of those fantastic sort of quite um, eccentric characters, but who's mm-hmm. an absolute master of the craft and really fascinating to to hear insights on how, how to go about doing it. Well, I can recommend. So I didn't drink gin until I was probably in my early 30s. I just didn't like martinis yeah. because I'd never exactly what you just said then, Andrew. Like they always just tasted like alcohol to me, um, mm-hmm. and then I I. Met someone who said, "No, no, no, like we can we can make this happen." And so for me now, and the ideal thing just for anyone at home, and it's very easy to do, um, is to buy a bottle of Noi Pra as a vermouth or Noily Pratt if you don't know how to say it, and that's cool. <laughs> and get a bottle of MGC gin. You want to you want to basically get your ice into like a I use a glass jar uh, and big chunks of ice, please. You put the vermouth in, you coat the ice, then you pour it all out. 
Then you fill it up with uh, MGC gin. You stir it down to temperature nice and gently for about three minutes into your martini glass with a grapefruit twist. Thank you very much, Mr. Marks. How good is that? Yeah, the best. <laughs> Mate, we're doing it. Hey, hang on, aren't we doing that on Tuesday night? I thought we were doing ma- ch- Martini Tuesday. That's, sure am. Yeah, terrific. Love it. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're so grateful uh, for you to join us on the show, uh, Andrew Marks, spending some time with the Wine Show Australia. Thank you very much for joining us on a Sunday morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. That's no, been awesome. Thanks, mate.